Tom, what are you most excited about when we talk about the future in virtual reality? What really excites me is this whole unlocking of intelligence and linking minds because when we're able to do that and we're able to release this power within us and work with others, we can, we can change the world. You're listening to the Nick Vujicic Podcast, the place where you will be coached in how to turn your obstacles into opportunities, inspired to dream big and challenged to never give up. Now here's our host, New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and entrepreneur, Nick Vujicic. Well, hello and welcome back to the Nick Vujicic Podcast. I am so excited to introduce to you one of my friends, Dr. Thomas A. Finess, who is an incredible human being who's been, um, it, it's got the title, the grandfather of virtual reality. How could you ever get a title like that? We're going to get into that. This is huge. I mean, we're talking about COVID and uh, decentralization of operations where everyone's working from home, from a virtual mode. What does this mean for the world? in virtual reality. I am so thankful, Tom, uh, to have you on the show. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be here, Nick, my old friend, and uh, <laughs> glad to have this chance to visit with you and all the folks out there. I am so thankful uh, uh, to have this time with you and share you with the world. Um, I'll never forget uh, being able to be a keynote uh, in San Jose, California, talking about how generosity and social responsibility, the, the, the keys of virtual reality, bringing an experience uh, to the average person where they don't have to travel around the world to see poverty, to get behind uh, organizations and actually see a higher level of even accountability and engagement of developed countries with developing countries. But before we get into today's episode, I always mention my friends at Storyville Coffee if you're a coffee drinker, anyone out there, and you don't like the uh, problem that we have around the world, like I don't, uh, human trafficking, uh, and you drink coffee, I challenge you to actually switch your coffee to Storyville Coffee. I made the switch five years ago because every time I drink a sip of Storyville Coffee, I know that I am a reason for someone else's freedom as they donate. Uh, to organizations worldwide and in Washington state against the charge, uh, charging against uh, human, uh, sorry, leading the charge against human trafficking all around the world. Check it out, storyville.com. You can get a 50% off discount off your first shipment order. Just go to storyville.com slash Nick and enter the promo code Nick and together we can make a difference in the world. Thank you, Storyville, for making the best coffee in the world and rescuing human slaves today. Tom, I know your heart. I know that you, first of all, are very humble. You're very kind. Um, and I also need to say that you're one of the most accomplished human beings that I've ever met in my life. You, to me, are almost like the Thomas Edison of our era. Uh, for those of you who do not know uh, when virtual reality did come in, uh, Tom actually helped in the military, um, correct me if I'm wrong, basically helping them build their own first virtual cockpit uh, for fighter jets 
1966. We're talking 54 years. Um, and you basically being a, a professor, inventor, and entrepreneur who has worked continuously on development of virtual reality technology for all those years. Uh, you're a professor in the University of Washington Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering and the founder of the Human Interface Technology Lab at the University of Washington and its sister labs at the University of Canterbury and University of Tasmania, Australia, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he is known for his contributions developing virtual interface technology and its applications in, get this, education, training, medicine, design, and entertainment. He and his students and colleagues have spun off 27 companies in the immersed computing space. Uh, he is also the general manager and owner of the Rat Lab, Rocking and Thinking Laboratory, the founder of the Virtual World Society, and a fellow in the IEEE. -E -E. What is the IEEE? -E -E? The Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. Tom, it's an honor <laughs> to have you here on this show. My uh, goodness, uh, thanks for joining me and giving us some insight and predictions about this technologic, uh, technological development that continues to go faster and faster. And now even with the, um, the COVID response to this, where everyone's going more virtual, um, I just want to open up to say this, first of all, um, I had a interesting experience watching that um what was that film the avatar mm -hmm. and you saw that yes. guy uh mm -hmm. who's in a wheelchair and mm -hmm. he goes into this like bed that takes him into this whole other world where he gets to run for the first time mm -hmm. me having no arms and no legs people ask me what would you do first if you were given arms and legs and the first thing that I always say is I want to, first of all, pick up my wife and throw her into a pool and second run. <laughs> um, I would love to know the feeling of running and the way that they capture that in that film uh, just was incredible. Um, and so meeting you and me having the opportunity to be there at the virtual world society, um, it was just incredible to even experience that day where we're in that avatar world and you mm -hmm. can see each other and mm -hmm. you're walking us through different worlds together. Mm -hmm. It has blown my mind. Um, and I'm excited to see what the future holds with technologies, but let's start at the beginning. Tom, how did you first get into what you've now been into for the 54 years of your life so far in the virtual space? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, this is quite a story. It's sort of a fun journey. Um, uh, didn't know what I was getting into at the time and how it's evolved. But uh, basically what I was doing is that uh, I graduated from the university in 1966 at uh, Duke University. I was an electrical engineer. This is during the Vietnam War period. I was going to go to the war. I mean, I was going to go into the military regardless. And so I decided to sign up for ROTC, which meant that when I received my degree, I also received a commission as an, a lieutenant, second lieutenant in the Air Force. And so what this meant is that, uh, yeah, I would get my diploma, but I also would go into the, uh, the Air Force. 
And uh, so I show up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for my assignment. And uh, uh, pretty much what happened over at Evel Blue, they, 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 this was an interesting assignment they gave me because I, you know, I, I'm reported to personnel and say, well, where do I go, you know, at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio? And, and they looked down the list and they said, Furness, Furness, Furness. I mean, there are like 200 lieutenants that show up, you know, and they're looking down and saying, hmm, you're not here. And does that mean I, I said, does that mean I could go home? And they said, no, 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 you're going to, you're going to have um, your assignment here somewhere. You got your orders. So they looked on this other list. Oh, here you are over here. You've been assigned to the LEAP program, L-E-A-P, Lieutenant's Education Application Program. And so, uh, what, well, what does that mean? He says, you can work anywhere you want to. You carry wow. your with you. Now, this is like hog heaven for an engineer. I mean, there's so much cool stuff going on, you know, with the military research and development. And, um, and so I said, well, I really, you know, I wanted to be a pilot, but my eyes weren't good enough, but maybe I can be a flight test engineer. So sure enough, I picked that as one of my, my proto jobs, you know, sort of to try things out. And I ended up flying in the fighters and uh, running equipment, testing uh, all kinds of equipment in the fighter airplanes. And uh, that was fun, boring holes through the sky, going through the mock, you know, um, and afterburner flying straight up, straight down, rolling, all that kind of stuff. Wow. And, um, but the more I thought about it, I said, you know, uh, this is really a lot of fun. And, uh, uh, but you spend, a lot, you spend a lot of time on the ground waiting for those few hours you get to get in the air. And uh, I'd be more interested in how to engineer these things, how to make these things. So I switched over into working on how do you design these cockpits for advanced airplanes? Because it was clear that there's enormous complexity. And uh, how do you deal with all of that stuff going on? And how do you get bandwidth to and from the brain of the pilot? Because it's just uh, so much going on. And so what, what I did was um, um, I, I, got assigned to this operation that would look at how do you design cockpits of the future. And it was clear to me that we're never gonna get there the way we're doing now. We have limited space, we have all these instruments. We have like in a typical fighter cockpit, you'd have uh, 300 switches and 75 displays. Wow. 11 switches on the control stick and nine switches on the throttle. And here you're flying twice the speed of sound, pulling G's at the boundaries of consciousness and being shot at the same time. <laughs> sort of a busy day at the office, right? And, and uh, the pilots, uh, you know, it takes years to train because there's just so many things going on. All these electronics, there are 50 computers there. They're spewing information to you with all your sensors and your propulsion system and your, your navigation system and your electronic intelligence system and, and all these things going on. And you're trying to take that in. And, and so, uh, you know, pilots would complain that they, their brains were oozing out of their fingertips, you know, it was just so complex. And they have to make decisions quickly, you know, in split seconds uh, that mean, you know, how, where they're delivering energy and whether they get shot down or if they kill somebody or whatever it is going on. And that was the situation I was in, trying to figure out, well, how do you get this bandwidth to and from the brain? Well, it's clear that we, we, can't, we couldn't cram more things into the cockpit. There just wasn't enough real estate inside the cockpit to do that. And, uh, and you couldn't really put, you know, a big, big picture in there because uh, again, that would be very expensive to do so. 
So I started thinking about, well, maybe what we ought to do is use virtual images. The idea of virtual images is it's something that you see in space, but doesn't really exist there. It just appears there. Like when you stand in front of a mirror. Um, and in case in your case, uh, you know, you have to, you not only shave, but put on your makeup and things like that, uh, uh, Nick, you know, so you look, look as good as you do, right? <laughs> so, <clears throat> so here, um, here's the situation. Here's that virtual image there that looks like you, but that really isn't you, right? Uh, it's just a virtual image of you. So the idea is you could take these devices and uh, small images and magnify them to make them bigger, optically put them at infinity out in the distance, make them stereo so it's all 3D, and there you have an alternative virtual world that looks like the real world but isn't really there. And the beauty of it is it doesn't take any space in the cockpit. So you can now create a panoramic scene that overlays on the real world or at night takes the place of the real world where you fuse all this information into this huge picture that is basically a way to organize this information to get it in and out of the brain quickly. And then the way you interact with it is naturally. You point at something and say something, or you use the eye position to look at things. And you get tactile feedback into your hands when you're touching things that are out there. So anyhow, this was the notion of this virtual cockpit, the cockpit that you wear. Um, so with the uh, and, uh, technology we had, with, uh, with tracking, with uh, displays, with uh, uh, these tactors and um, artificial intelligence, all these pieces we're working on is so-called super cockpit program. So I was, I was testing these things, building these things and testing them and, and uh, doing flight test programs and, and basically establishing the foundation of what we know today is virtual reality. Now this one display, this so super, super cockpit display that was uh, designed and developed by, uh, by my colleagues and myself there at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, would generate 120 degree field of view image, by 80 degrees, stereographic, and of course it tracks your head position. So this, it's like an IMAX theater that you're wearing on your head. As you look wow. around, you see this huge picture, and depending upon where you're looking, you know it puts a different picture there. So it's like a picture window that you're able to move around to this outside world. And by the way, you can see at night, you can see through sensor eyes that actually amplify light or look at infrared spectrum and things like that. So it basically, what it did was get us um, eyes, uh, matches our eyes and matches our brain in the way we take in information, these natural interfaces. So uh, the first day we, we, we built a simulator to test some of these concepts, we called it the VCAST the visually coupled airborne system simulator. And, um, and uh, you know, we had, uh, it took us a whole room full of computers to do this, <laughs> sitting on the ground uh, to yeah. generate all these pictures and all the dynamics and things like that. But when we turned that on the first time, it was amazing because this picture opened up. And, this, and then you looked around and you said, oh my goodness, what have we done? <laughs> and uh, because it was, it was unbelievable. It used to, I mean, we had smaller fields of view before we we're looking around, like through a through pipe hole, but now this became really big. And it was like somebody reached out of the picture and pulled you inside. And now you're not looking at a picture anymore. You're in a place. Wow. And you think about it as a place. You don't realize you're sitting in the cockpit anymore. You're in this picture. You're in this place.
So anyhow, what happened was this is this is over 23 years of work I just condensed in a few minutes. Um, wow. What happened was uh, I got this phone call from a general uh, in the Pentagon saying, uh, "We we've heard about this uh, this virtual cockpit work that you're doing, and we'd like for you to hold a press release, press conference on what you're doing." And uh, and I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, we need some good pub publicity. <laughs> the government, the, the military is getting a bad rap, I guess, for some things that were going on in the press. And they said, it'd be good to have a good story to tell. And you're working on that virtual, <laughs> virtual reality stuff. Why don't we? And I said, yes, but it's, it's not classified. He said, declassified. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, we right. end up with this film crew from CBS Evening News, Dan Rather's crowd, David Martin. The Pentagon correspondent was there with a film crew taping for two days, taping what I was doing in my lab. Uh, and um, so uh, we end up on the CBS Evening News. And uh, here I am talking about this virtual cockpit on CBS Evening News. And uh, wow, that was the end. That was, a, that was a change in my life, that one event, because after that, I wasn't doing military R&D anymore. I was in the show business. And uh, so, so people started calling uh, the switchboard at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I want to talk to that guy who does that helmet and cockpit stuff. And uh, they get to me and this mother calls and said, I saw this program on television and, and um, you, uh, isn't there anything you can do with that technology to help my child? My child has cerebral palsy. Um, and then uh, several surgeons had called and said, you know, uh, we're trying to do these surgical procedures and we, we get lost inside the body in a way. Our navigation system, which is our, our CT scan, is on a light box on the wall. Any way you can take that and superimpose it inside the patient. Another surgeon said, I want to be on the inside looking out. Uh, any way to put my eyes inside the body. Firefighting companies were calling saying, we have this real problem where firefighters are going to these buildings. They don't know where the fire is. They're full of smoke. They don't know the people there. They don't even know where the other firefighters are. And the guy that actually runs the whole show, the fire chief, is outside the building with the radio, and he doesn't know anything. Is there any way that you could sort of tell us that? Tell us what this building is like on the inside as they navigate around. And, you know, my answer to these questions was, well, yeah, we could do that. As a matter of fact, that'd be sort of easy to do compared to what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and that's when I realized, you know, this is something big. This is transformative in terms of a way to move our minds the way to give us a transportation system for our senses, to have these experiences, uh, real experiences like we do in the real world, only now they're synthesized and can take us places where we couldn't go otherwise. And so I was, I was giving talks and I was uh, writing articles, popular mechanics. Uh, we were the BBC and CNN and all these uh, uh, network programs are coming to the, the base and, and more and more, I was getting three or four phone calls a week from people who said, well, can you do this or can you help me with that? And I realized, you know, best thing we can do is get this out of the military because mm -hmm. there's so much that can be done out there in the world with this technology to, to help mankind, to lift man, mankind. And so um, I decided to leave the military and uh, to basically beat my sword into a plowshare and to, to uh, figure out a way to get it out. And it was clear to me that the taxpayers spent a lot of money on my education. Yeah. And uh, 
that uh, we should take that out and put it into uh, developing technology and applications for those, those folks out there that can really use it, uh, uh, aside from military applications. And so I started shopping and put together a plan to set up a laboratory somewhere in the U.S. at a university where uh, there'd be students that would there and they would be become, you know, can, I could relate what I've learned to them and then they continue to develop the technology and we work on these applications of medicine and education and, and design and so forth. And so that, uh, I made the move in 1989. I moved from uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to Seattle to the University of Washington. And uh, I started the HIT lab, the Human Interface Technology Lab, to work on the technology of interfacing humans to complex machines. And with the idea that we were gonna you know, look at these application domains, work on the core technology to get this to happen. Now that's been what, 30 some odd years ago. <laughs> I began. That. I can't believe that. I yeah. mean, we're talking 1989. Yes, 89. And, and so what, uh, th just, just sort of to, to wrap up this portion of it, that's really where VR came from, um, the initial part of VR. And, and what we found was we unlocked something is inside of humans. We gave people a place to go that they never would be able to go otherwise. They could walk at the speed of light. They can shrink themselves to one millimeter high or one atom high and walk on a soap bubble. Or they could uh, make their interplanetary distance 10,000 light years between the eyes and look at a galaxy and see wow. it emerge in three dimensions. I mean, it's just huge, unprecedented medium to expand our mind. And that became obvious when we started this journey at, um, at the University of Washington. But we had to make the technology, the, the delivery technology, the medium, and then we wanted to work on the message in the medium, which were these different applications. So that's where it came from. And, and we realized that, that VR was this unprecedented medium that could give us high bandwidth to the brain and could help us assimilate information rapidly and uh, again, do things that we never could do in the real world. Not to take the place of the real world, but to augment the reality we experience in the real world with this virtual reality to expand, expand ourselves and expand our understanding and comprehension. Incredible, my goodness, what a great job to summarize so much. <laughs> We're talking like lifetimes of experience, uh, all, all in, in that short amount of years. Uh, and then in perspective, 1989, um, unbelievable. The first time I ever put on a virtual reality headset uh, was in LA. I mm -hmm. won't tell you which company we were with. And um, they put me in a computer game where um, I'm uh, like a, uh, uh, I'm, I'm in like a psychiatric ward that's haunted and I'm a patient. <laughs> And, uh, and, and wherever I looked with my eyes, I could walk to it, right? Like a hotspot, whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so it was crazy. The, the craziest thing is when you first enter into this world and it's like, yeah, you're in this world and everywhere you look, it's as if you're there. Mm -hmm. The freakiest thing was when I looked at my legs. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got legs. And it was crazy. <laughs> um, Anyway, that was a really cool experience. Um, and then obviously in the entertainment world, 
Um, I actually got my own headset um, for the uh, the World Cup uh, in soccer because uh, I, I could meet somebody in a suite with the um, synthetic or simulated game that's happening live. And then I could mm-hmm. talk to somebody, they could talk to me, and we're basically at a stadium around the other world watching a live game. Really cool experience. Um, and with, with us being now in 2020, I can't imagine, you know, uh, the technology ahead. I mean, I, I remember when I was a teenager, I was like, one day I want to drive a car. And I've already driven a car. Uh, and now you got cars that are driving us. Um, where we are going with technology and entertainment is one thing. Uh, what I loved about how you mentioned it, that that mother of the child with cerebral palsy, can you actually expand now a year on, on mental health uh, in even also the, the things that you share with me on physical therapy where people are not, especially teenagers and children, where you're not so motivated to do the therapy uh, exercises and how a branch of, 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 a, of a team around you had developed now um, a program where it's almost gamified. Um, bringing that, the gamification of mental health through virtual reality, that is a huge revolution. Well, yes, it is. And, and uh, certainly with this, uh, this kind of technology, immersive computing technology, we have the ability to control environments, of course, that can help encourage healing in various ways. Let me, let me give you sort of another little story about what happened. So here I've moved from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to uh, Seattle, and I started the HIT lab, and we start working on projects, and I have, and the and, and neat thing about my, my lab was that um, it didn't necessarily belong to any department. It was sort of a university-wide lab, and I had students from pretty much everywhere across the university. From, uh, from all the engineering, pretty much, except we didn't have anything, anyone from chemical engineering, but we had bio and electrical and mechanical and computer science and engineering and civil engineering and material science and engineering, and um, as well as art, drama, music, oceans and fisheries, psychology, medical school, dental school, nursing school students. We had, uh, um, uh, Department of the Environment. We had uh, uh, the uh, you know architecture. All of these students, these mainly grad students, were there in the lab. I mean, they physically resided in the lab, and I had a consortium of fifty companies. They couldn't believe it. They'd never seen anything like this before. This transdisciplinary kind of environment. And so we had um, uh, uh, these companies would pay fifty thousand dollars a year to be a member of the Virtual Worlds Consortium. And uh, so with that money, what I was able to do is have a lot of freedom to probe things. And uh, I, would, I would organize these little um, um, uh, groups, the students, into uh, these groups of four and then seed it with a problem to solve. And, uh, and this, this group may include an electrical engineer, a psychologist, a oceans and fisheries, and a uh, drama student. <laughs> you say, what? That's bizarre. And uh, what happens, of course, is they have different perspectives. Yep. They have different languages, the ways of looking at this problem. Oh, my goodness. We were getting three or four patents a week from these kids coming out of that. And they loved it. 
I mean, it was exhilarating and they were realizing, you know, what an expansion of their, their own internal models that came from being able to look through other people's eyes. And so one of the things that uh, it was clear though, is that a lot of people didn't know what virtual reality was about. And I decided, you know, we need to sort of get it out there, start getting it out there. So I, I designed uh, and then patented this um, personal eyewear display device. It was the first consumer virtual display to exist. And wow. it was um, patented in 92. And then it was, we released the first version of it and started a company called Virtual Vision and a 93, 94 time period. And uh, so it went out there on the marketplace and it turns out that we're way too soon for this because, uh, you know, all we could do is uh, broadcast television. <laughs> we could pick up broadcast television. You could watch television while you're walking around. But, um, it's <laughs> uh, amazing. I, we, we didn't have like. Are you serious? Like, I never even knew of dial-up internet till two thousand. You know, like yeah. Holy, holy <laughs> you were like. So this is this is actually the electronics piece of it. You know, it put you put it on your head. This this kind of thing, and then then you'd have this little visor, but then you'd have a rear projection screen right here. I don't. You probably can't see that right there. And it would go down and project on a prism. And then you look through that prism and you see this, this uh, one meter screen at about three meters away. Wow. Yeah. And that was, uh, we built a bunch of these things. And, uh, but the problem is nobody bought them <laughs> because they're too expensive. It cost, uh, and you know, just the parts and putting them together. This is in the very early days of liquid crystal displays. And, um, it cost seven or 99 bucks. And all you could do is sort of watch Oprah. Broadcast telling me or whatever. You could watch the NFL playoffs, you know, in the city on Waikiki Beach, but why would you ever want to do that kind of thing? But anyhow, uh, this, uh, but what happened was interesting. Uh, we started looking at uh, the sales figures and we saw the, all these dentists were buying the system. We thought, really? what are dentists doing with these things? And we started investigating and what they were doing is putting them on their patients. So while they were doing the uh, dental surgery on these patients, the patients had these glasses on, they plugged it into a VCR and they're watching movies. Wow. And so they are zoned out watching a movie while the dentist is inflicting pain on them, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the, what happened was the dentist said, hey, this is great. The patients love it. You know, they, you know, I'm able to get on with my work. You know, we don't have to carry on a conversation. They're zoned out. They don't complain, uh, except it's causing another problem. Now we can't get them to leave. <laughs> <laughs> They're all sucked into the movie and they say, I can't leave now. This is the good part. You oh, know? And, and, but really more remarkable than that are the kids, the little kids, because this is plugged into Nintendo. And so here the kids were playing Nintendo while the dentist the kids are terrified, right? But you put this on, they're playing Nintendo. And then after it's over, they're asking their mothers, when can I go back to the dentist again? Put on that <laughs> visor. Now, when did that ever happen? The kids want to go back to the dentist. So uh, we said, we started looking at this, and something's going on here that we didn't ever anticipate. And then we started going to children's hospital where kids are really sick. They have, um, um, especially kids with leukemia, and they have to do... Uh, uh, bone marrow samples to find out how the chemotherapy is doing and so forth. And, and they extract the bone marrow. It's very painful. And they can't really anesthetize these patients to, uh, um, uh, to, to, to do this. 
because they're really sick. And so what they do is they put on this headset. We tried this out. We put on the headset. They're playing Nintendo again. While the physician puts a needle into their hip to extract the bone marrow, the kid just keeps going. Goes, uh, Unbelievable. He keeps going. And the doctors and nurses are looking at each other and said, what is going on here? And then wow. we take it to the burn clinics where patients are, you know, and severely burned and their rest pain is, you know, pretty high, although it can be controlled with morphine, but when they go in for wound care, which means that, uh, you know, you're uh, extracting staples from a skin graft or you're soaking them in water and sloughing off the dead skin, or you're doing physical therapy and things like that, the pain shoots through the roof. There's not enough morphine you can dose them with to keep the pain from going through. But you put the VR headset on them and you, uh, and the, you go through this wound care and you ask them their pain index and they said, well, when are you gonna start? When in fact, you finished the procedure. Oh my gosh. So what this showed us is incredible power in terms of being in this world. Wow. And you're, you know, when, when you're, to experience pain, you have to be conscious of it. And you heard of all these stories with automobile accidents and battlefield things where, where people are, are doing things where they've had a broken leg or their, their arm is shot up or something like that. And they just don't realize it until they get done with what they're trying to do. So this ability to communicate with the brain was there. Now this led to a lot of other things um, in terms of the medicine things, including back to your mental health question, you know, PTSD. This became an amazing tool to help solve some of the problems with PTSD because you could control the level of reality of the experience. And the whole idea is for them to go back to that experience and be able to deal with it and put wow. it in the right place. So you can provide different levels of, same is true with arachnophobia, uh, fear of spiders. You wow. know, people that have severe disab disabilitating kinds of fear, uh, of uh, fear of heights, fear of uh, claustrophobia, fear of arachnophobia, all these things. And um, we healed them, cured them with this. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. So, um, and then of course there were the other, uh, using the technology for simulation, we could do a uh, surgical simulation of a uh, suturing of transurethral uh, resection of the prostate of uh, sinus surgery simulation, all these things, we built these simulators and uh, many of them are out being used today, again, using a virtual reality as a means of, of training these, these surgeons. So yeah, it's, um, it, it's sort of, it's one of those things, Nick, just like the original um, virtual cockpit stuff, uh, you had a problem to solve and you started working on some technology, you solved that problem, but then you started doing some other things and you tripped over something else. Uh, th let me give you another example. This, was a, uh, this is where I, um, it was clear that, that when we're making these kind of devices, that uh, here you have that little little small screen there. It's, you, mm -hmm. there you can see that mm -hmm. little small screen. Well, you can only pack so many pixels on that. And, uh, and it's gonna be, you know, when you're expanding it and making it big, you know, you're gonna see those pixels. So I decided, you know, we gotta do another, do this another way. Why don't we just scan a photon stream directly on the retina? Why don't we do away with screens altogether and just take these really low energy, miniature lasing devices and paint the picture on the retina, like in a raster. So you don't have screens anymore. Wow. But what you, what you have is just this photon scan on the, on the retina, but you see a picture. 
It appears in space and it can be huge. High resolution, it's not limited. High resolution, um, color, uh, wide field of view, projected into space. And oh, by the way, you can see the real world with this information superimposed on top of it, mm -hmm. if you want to. Mm -hmm. And so I invented this device called the virtual retinal display. It was patented in 1995. And uh, we started another company called Microvision to actually develop this and uh, this technology and market it. And it was actually, at the time, it was the largest uh, licensing deal the University of Washington had ever done. Wow. With Microvision. And, and so, um, so we started working on this technology. We built up these, uh, these uh, optical benches and were able to demonstrate how well it worked. And it was phenomenal. And this guy came in to see us and, and said, yeah, I've been hearing about this virtual retinal display. I'd like to, I'd like to see how it, uh, it works. We said, sure, come on down to the lab. And we'll, we'll show you. And we had this optical bench set up. We had a monochrome, uh, a monocular display, just one eye. You'd look into this at the time. And um, so we, we sat him down to bench and said, we turned this thing on and, and say, look into, into this uh, uh, special lens, you know, where the light is being projected on your retina. And he did. And sure enough, he sees this amazing image, this brilliant uh, uh, scene. And he said, wow, this is really cool. And we said, yeah, take off your spectacles, take off your glasses, you know, and he did. And he said, oh, I can still see it clearly. We said, yeah, oh, wow. we're not using your spectacles anymore. And, uh, and then on his own, he just happened to look with his other eye. And uh, he said, no, no, what are you doing? And we said, well, what do you mean? He says, I'm blind in my left eye, but I can still see that image. And we said, what? He said, yeah, I was in an automobile accident years ago. It left scar tissue in my, my eye, and I haven't been, been able to see out of that eye. Now I can see. We said, oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so we went to the Department of Ophthalmology over at the medical school and said, uh, this, is, this is happening. And they started sending us patients. And sure enough, these patients that had retinitis pigmentosa, age-related macular degeneration disease, uh, keratoconus, all these optical and, and uh, conditions of the retina were able to see, at least see better with this. And so, oh my goodness, we stumbled on this. It oh was by goodness. accident. And that took us off into some NSF funded projects to look at low vision as a, an application of this device. While the microvision was continuing to build these for other applications. So, so the medical side of this, the technology is again, it's just unprecedented. It's difficult to describe it. People think it's just a game gadget. It's not. What it is is a transportation system for our senses. It takes us to places. And by the way, it puts a place inside of us by putting us into a place. And you never forget it. That's the mm -hmm. other thing. When we started looking into educational applications of the technology, uh, we did nine, we've done nine studies of um, different educational aspects of this. And one of them was um, a project by actually my first PhD student was at uh, Garfield High School. From Garfield High School, uh, we, we wanted to find out, does, could you learn better in VR because of this, this power of it, of being immersed in the environment, especially when you can shrink yourself to different sizes and things like that. So we talked to the chemistry uh, professors, uh, chemistry teachers, at Garfield High School here in Seattle. And 
they said, yeah, students are having a sort of rough time understanding electron orbitals, you know, sort of abstract and, you know, they don't really get it. Uh, some of them don't get it. And um, they said, oh, and we said, okay, well, let's see what we can do. Let's, uh, let's look at uh, comparing traditional ways of teaching about electron orbitals with uh, the R ways. And we'll put something in between. We'll have a computer-aided instruction kind of thing. So one treatment would be where you're just sort of doing the blackboard and the textbook and the teacher lecturing. The second would be an interactive computer uh, tutorial kind of thing. And the third would be you go into VR and you go into an atom building room. You're shrunk down to the size of an atom. And then what you start doing is assembling an atom. You take a proton and a neutron, you put them together to form a nucleus. And then you go into a bin of electrons and you pull out the electrons and you give them a spin and a little energy level and you put them in this orbit. You know, and it starts going in this, this orbit, the Bohr model of the atom. And then you start adding more atomic numbers, more protons, neutrons, electrons, and you start creating these shells. Oh my goodness. And then, and then compounds. So what happened was uh, we tested these people at the end of the module, these students. The students that were making A's before the module continued to make A's. They got it. But the students that are making C's and D's and flunking caught up with the A students. Wow. And when we tested them a year later, they were better. Wow. So what that told us is, first of all, there's nothing wrong with those students. They're yep. just as smart as the A students. It's yep. just that they learn a different way. And when you give them a chance to get a hands-on learning experience, what that does is expand it. And that was repeated in all the studies we did after that. The most recent, by the way, we did at the Robert Eagle Staff Middle School uh, here in Seattle, where we took VR into the school and basically to try to see if sixth graders, 11, 12 year old kids could actually build virtual worlds to teach STEM subjects to other sixth graders. <laughs> and now it's, it, you know, it's, it's working every, it's in the classroom. It's, it's a elective that they, they can do and uh, a, a tech elective and they learn about VR and make virtual worlds and do that. Wow. I love and that. So, when, when I heard about virtual worlds, explain to anyone that's never heard a sentence say, yeah, and you can make your own virtual world. Can you mm -hmm. explain that? Especially for me, I mean, when I was blown away when I was with you last face to face and I was exposed to so much technology and just, just the, the possibilities are literally unlimited. Um, I, I was so blown away when you said, yeah, we've got young kids making their own worlds and then I can enter in their world. Like mm -hmm. explain that. Okay. Well, it, uh, basically what this is is three dimensional computer graphics. Uh, and what you do is you control your position within that three-dimensional world. So what is a three-dimensional world? Well, basically what you're doing is creating just like a normal room. If you were going to be building a house, what you'd do is frame it, right? You'd put in the foundation and you would put, uh, you know, build the, the floor and then you build the walls and the roof and then you put furniture in it and things like that. You do that with these objects and with these scene generators uh, in this three-dimensional model. 
But the difference is, and you look at it on a screen, a two-dimensional screen, you know, it's all compressed into two dimensions. Now you can pan around and you sort of get a, what we call a two and a half D feeling for that. Mm -hmm. But what you do now in VR is you go into the scene, you break the glass and go to the other side of your screen, basically, and you're in this world. And you look around, you move around, and uh, there's things behind you, in front of you, buff, blow, and it becomes a space. And, but you created it. You created, you designed it from outside, now you're going inside of it. But what these kids are doing uh, at the Robert E. Yosef Middle School is using some other tools where you create 3D within 3D. So you go into this empty space, and then by using your hand controllers, and uh, there's a, there's a project, uh, program called, application program called Tilt Brush, where you can actually paint in three dimensions and then walk oh, wow. through your painting. And then somebody else could be there too and paint their part. You're walking through their paint. So you're doing this all in 3D. I have a granddaughter who is um, an artist. Um, and uh, I took her down to my lab and I wanted her to see Tilt Brush for the first time. I wanted to see VR for the first time, which is, of course, you can imagine just blew her away. And that's what happens. By the way, that's a holy moment. That is a holy moment when you put that headset on someone for the first time, just like the experience you had. Oh my goodness. You ought to see their eyes when you take the head. head. I mean, it's like you've opened a whole world to them that they didn't know existed. Well, anyhow, that happened with my granddaughter, Haley. And uh, I went down to the lab and, and I showed her this tilt brush where she could paint in 3D while being in 3D. And she was going around and making things. And in 20 minutes, uh, she made this incredible world. 20 minutes, starting from scratch. She didn't know the tool or anything. Just oh, wow. it all coming out. And then when she got out of the headset, she chewed me out. She said, why didn't you tell me this before? <laughs> why haven't you given me one of these things before? <laughs> <laughs> she has one now, by the way. But um, still, uh, that's, that's the great um, power of being able to do 3D within 3D and create these spaces, create these worlds where um, they are three-dimensional. They can be basically scans of the real world. You can take a 360 camera and go to a place, or somebody else could go to a place. Let's say you're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, you know, and you do this 360 view. And, um, and you basically, when you put the headset on, you're there and looking out in 360, panning around, then you can make a video. You can actually stream that video. So somebody else can be on a trip to the Grand Canyon and you can be there with them, looking around in real time, see the wind blowing through the trees and the rivers going by and all that stuff. And, or it can be recorded for later playback. So all of those things are having to do with moving your mind to another place without having to move your body to that place. I love it. It's incredible. For, for me, when you look at, you know, the motivational speaker that goes into the corporate market sector mm -hmm. um, and, and they need um, their employees to engage their brain towards some exercises or thought processes for their own mental health. Um, I know how real it is. Like you can trick your brain that you're somewhere else. Uh, and, and I, I'm envisioning just a lot more going to 
virtual reality for these experiences um, that that really can tap into also family entertainment, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden you're now going to Africa without having to travel on a plane. And at this point, you can't even go there anyway, even right. if you wanted to. Um, really interesting engagement um, on opportunity where I'll never forget. You said you looked at me and after my eyes were like this, I'm like, what did I just experience? <laughs> um, goodness. Um, and, then, and then you said, Nick, every single household eventually in America will have a room specially designated to virtual experiential learning and interaction. And, and that whole argument that technology, social media, and all these things have yeah. almost been the social distancing, right? Um, right. Uh, I, I, could it be that virtual reality is the missing link that brings in a unity in the world um, interaction, um, accessibility experiences like never before. Is this the ticket where anyone who ever said that technology separated us as society? I mean, to me, this is absolutely opposite. Well, you know, that's, that's really, um, an important question right now, isn't it? Um, uh, people are saying, yeah, but, but if you're wearing a headset, you don't see the, you don't see the people around you. You don't see the, the world around you and things like that. And I said, my, my response to that is, well, what is reality? In reality, we're expanding our definition of what is reality. If we experience it and we remember it as a world, isn't that just as much a reality if we do it virtually as if we do it in the real world? So it's an expansion of it. It's not a replacement. It's an expansion. And when a family can take a road trip wherever, Africa, Canary Islands, Galapagos, wherever, and, uh, and without leaving their home. Or they can go into an atom world, and they can learn about quantum mechanics, or learn about history, black history, uh, can learn about all of these things. Wow, what, what an enormous classroom we have. It's the learning living room, what I call the virtual learning living room. And, um, and that is where, how a part of our models as, as humans are going to be formed in the nurture within our homes. And, uh, even, you know, and, and I think families are, have more power than they think to change the world. In the end, it comes down to individuals, doesn't it? Groups of individuals. That starts in the home and then in the communities and then in the nations and in the world. Now, what... VR is, uh, and this immersive computing technology of our age, and there'll be things that follow, but what it does is give us a way to link our minds in an unprecedented way. And not only that, the fact that we are able to see a person without seeing what they look like. Okay, now think about that a minute. Um, When you're in virtual reality, just like an avatar, the movie Avatar you mentioned to begin with, you see this representation of a person just because that's the way we generally interact with the world. But the most important thing is the heart of that person. And what I've found uh, in a a meeting that took place in February, there were 
There are 175 speakers, 150 events, uh, people from around the world in VR over six days with, um, uh, with, with nobody moving from their home. And, uh, and I met, and from every continent, every continent, including Antarctica, were wow. represented there. And so I met people I never would have met. I don't care how many conferences I went to. And most of these people wouldn't been able to go to a conference anyway, because they right. couldn't afford it. But they were there and I met them and I saw an avatar of them, but something happened. We started talking, I learned about them, they learned about me. A connection was made, heart to heart. And the appearance didn't matter. And think about what this means when we're talking about um, racial bias and things like that. We're so locked into this skin color deal that we can touch a heart and interact with the heart of a person regardless of what they look like. Heaven knows that helps you, Nick, you know, uh, because of uh, all that Australian face that you have, you know, <laughs> have this avatar representation. Of <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and it especially helps with me, you know, I, you know, but um, uh, I, I could be a youngster there, you know, uh, in terms of appearance, but it's about the hearts. And I have found that over and over again, that it's really about the hearts and not about the physical appearance. So together we can link hearts and minds uh, by, uh, uh, through this technology and we can go places together. You and I can go places. You'll have mobility that you've never had before to go with me in these places. We'll go discover. Yep. We'll be there together. We'll be with a teacher. By the way, this is not just homes. This is how we augment what's going on in schools. But remember, there are really more technology in homes than we're ever going to have in the schools, probably, uh, in, at least in the Western world. So let's say that we're, we're going into this world. We're going into a Pythagorean theorem kingdom. And... Uh, we have some problems to solve in there. That's gonna require a little bit of use of mathematics and geometry and trigonometry maybe. And, uh, but we have a companion, we have our mentor. Our mentor is an owl. Owl that flies in and lands on our shoulder. And uh, Archimedes, we'll call our owl Archimedes. And Archimedes guides us and says, Swissers of our, you know, you see that castle over there? there's a princess in that castle that needs rescuing. Uh, wonder if you can do that. And you go up to the castle and there's a moat around the castle. You say, I can't get across this moat. There are alligators in there, you know? And uh, uh, the Archimedes said, well, what are you gonna do? And, and uh, uh, I think I saw a ladder on the other side of the castle. You go to the other side of the castle and you, yeah, sure enough, there's a ladder. And you see this window up there that you could get in. But the problem is it has to go across the moat and it has to be exactly the correct length to get from mm. the ground to the window. Well, how do you figure that out? Well, Archimedes said, I, I think I saw that each of those blocks is sort of one meter uh, high. Maybe uh, figure that out. And well, it looks like it's from the moat, it's about so high. Well, how far is the moat across? Well, there's a way to figure that out. We have this laser rangefinder. we cheat a little bit. but. <laughs> <laughs> but then Archimedes said, "This, look at this, how you can figure out the length of that ladder. 
using the Pythagorean theorem. And you say, wow, yeah. So you figure it out. You, you have a virtual chainsaw that saws off the ladder of that particular length. You put it down, you get in the castle and you rescue the princess. And oh, by the way, there's another problem solved when you're inside the castle. And so what you're doing is through all of these mathematical, trigonometric, whatever principles, physics, and you never forget it. You never forget it because you've been there and done that. And so, you know, that can be done at home. You don't have to do that uh, by going to moving your body to another place. And I think what we have to do is realize that if we get three, 30 kids, 20 to 30 kids in the classroom, they're sort of not individuals anymore. They're objects. You know, because how do you do it? How do teachers do it? When in fact, these are all individual learning machines. And uh, they need to make their own course in that castle. That's the way they're going to remember it. Otherwise, if something's pressed down them, if they're sort of pushing things from the outside in, it's not nearly as powerful as from the inside out. And what happened with this, this sign of self-directed discovery, but with Archimedes. Archimedes is important, the guide, the mentoring. It's incredible because I remember in school, it was more of like, couldn't be bothered learning uh, something that I never thought I'd ever use. Uh, and then I would learn to just regurgitate when the exam is done. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the exam is done, I've forgotten everything. Mm -hmm. um, wherein it's, it's interesting. It could be languages, you know, where yes. we, we all know the scientific research already. When you write something down, your attention, right, mm -hmm. goes through the roof. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're writing something while you're, um, or drawing or doing, mm -hmm. now imagine that now magnified on this whole new level. That's just so incredible. I love this where you did go from linking the minds now to linking the heart. I'm thinking of all these um, programs as well. I, I wonder if there's any prison system that actually allows a closed network of, um, you know, goggles that, that help many people who go out of prison. They, from what I'm hearing, um, because it's so unknown to them going back to, to, to a world that they now don't know, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to, that feels a little ill-prepared. Uh, I wonder if there's a, there's a virtual reality gap that, that can be fit in and, and little things like I'm thinking of, you know, the, the foster systems as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the group homes where mm -hmm. they can step out of what they feel is, you know, obviously in, in, in some way it's very limiting and, and, and just, you know, you got to do this, 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 this compared to like, it would be so cool. Those who've never had, um, you know, a parent, to have someone who's as kind and friendly as Tom Finesse to show them how to change uh, the oil in the car or how to change the tire or, you know, talk about money or financial literacy or in a, in a, in a world, you know, like I, I feel like this is so exciting. And the fact that you were doing what you were doing back in the 19, I mean, as early as 66, then eighties and nineties, so now where we're looking 20 years ahead, um, what, what are you most excited about when we talk about the future 
in virtual reality? Wow, that's, uh, I think I knew that question was coming. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I've already blown away. Like, the little that I know, imagine what you're foreseeing. I can't imagine what you're foreseeing. Well, one of the things that excites me is, uh, again, uh, we have more power than we think. And uh, one of the things we, we want to do, of course, is light, light fires within these uh, young people, with, with kids, uh, with adults too. I mean, when you think about uh, what's gonna happen, what the predictions of what's gonna happen with the professions that exist today, if you believe the New York Times, and you know, 50% of the professions that people are in right now are gonna disappear within the next 20 years or so. And so what's gonna happen? How are they gonna retread if you're in mid-career? And this is where the learning living room uh, and that kind of access to gain the new skills to be a repair of robots or to be a repair of artificial intelligence uh, machines or whatever it's going to be, uh, teachers that teach in different spaces, um, whatever it is, that's going to happen. But what, we, what really excites me is this whole unlocking of intelligence and linking minds because when we're able to do that, and we're able to release this power within us and work with others, we can, we can change the world. We can solve uh, the problems, those 17 problems in the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals. We can become one in heart and mind with individuals. We don't want to sacrifice individuality because that's what makes it all work, is diversity makes it work because we have these different perspectives. And so I believe this connection is going to be important. But what each of us needs is a super cockpit for the mind. And so what I want to do is instead of a super cockpit for an airplane, which I used to work on, I want to have a super cockpit for the mind. And what this super cockpit has in it is has the ability for us to actually envision what's happening in our bodies to begin with. What's going on with us inside physiologically? Because we can actually tune ourselves better to our bodies of what we should be eating, the exercises we should be doing, the sleep that we should be getting in order for us to be maximum performance, to be healthy, well-being, things like that. I mean, just the simple feedback loop to put in our brain what's going on in our body and use that to make sure that our machine is working optimally. And how do we keep it to the point where we're at peace within ourselves? Yeah. We have, uh, because, you know, most of these diseases are happening, you know, uh, uh, with stress. <laughs> That's probably what's, what's causing cancer to happen. A lot of the diseases we see, uh, because, and, and, you know, because people are overstressing about things. Yeah. And so teaching methods of prying this biofeedback to help us regulate calm down, it's gonna be okay, uh, and let's be optimum. Then we have these, we have what we call a, a flow state generator. Now flow state generator helps us alter our consciousness to where we're in a flow state, a state of flow. And that means it's sort of, there's a focus that comes down to where you're concentrating on one thing, we're able to remove a lot of the distractions. You're concentrating on this one thing and something magic happens. You get in the state of flow. Jazz musicians talk about that. 
when they get into the flow, they start jamming and then it's magic. It's just sort of like this all comes out of this and they can't explain why. Basketball players, when they're in the flow, you have those five players that just can't do anything wrong. Surgeons talk about this. Game players talk about this, getting in a state of flow. And there's evidence that you can learn seven times faster, hyper learning, um, and absorb it and remember it. So it's unlocking what we can do with our minds in terms of learning, expanding what we can do. We would also have in this a, a means of, of uh, basically expanding our sensory capability. It turns out we have so much that we're not using, one of which is our peripheral retina. You know, we, we have a retina that extends beyond, you know, 210, 220 degree field of view. And what we're using is this part of it. <laughs> we're looking at screens all the time. We are, you know, pretty much involved in, the, uh, you know, looking at our phones or looking at our screens. And, and sometimes we go out in the world, but we don't really pay attention to what's going on around us. So we're losing our connection to all that sensory capability we have. Same is true with smell. Same is true with hearing. Same is true with feeling. We need to retrain ourselves to actually use what we have as input mechanisms. So this is a training system for our senses as well, uh, the super cockpit for the mind. We also want to, to take advantage of the way the brain connects to the senses because there's a lot of things that are processed subliminally, that are processed autonomously and where we can input, for example, using this peripheral retina that may tap our limbic system and our subconscious, where we go, we present information out here that sets the stage for setting our, basically our emotional state, perhaps. We're just beginning to discover that right now. We also want to have an epiphany generator. We want to have this ability to give us these wow things. This, this sense of wonder that just cannot be put into words. All you can say is, wow, there's no way that you can process it. And we can, <laughs> and people need to have these wow things that pull them out of their, their minds and, and um, the models that they have inside of them. And so there are a number of these different things. There's gonna be R2D2 also. We'll have R2D2 sitting in the background. Uh, of, of our super cockpit for the mind, R2-D2, like in Star Wars, that sort of is a bot that we send out to do things for us, to send out to do errands and gather up this information. And oh, by the way, I'm really interested in Jupiter. What would it be like to walk on Jupiter, assuming you could walk on Jupiter, um, this gas giant? But R2-D2 goes out there and scours that and says, okay, uh, I've created a museum for you. Wow for you to go into to discover about um, 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 Jupiter. And here you are, you can walk on it virtually. Wow. And get to do And so R2-D2 is there to help expand your comprehension by searching all the knowledge of the world. Now, and so you're going to have basically a supercock for the mind has the computational capability of all the human brains on the earth running to help you grow. Because that's what pretty much Ray Kurzweil, if you look at the curves, 
the computational capacity we're going to have, we're already surpassed one mouse brain on our desktop for $1,000 we can buy more than one mouse brain, more, one, or more than one insect, insect brain, then we're going to a mouse brain, and then we're going to a human brain, and then we're going to all the human brains. By 2060, for $1,000, we can buy the computational capacity of all the human brains on the earth. How in the world are we gonna interact with that? Well, this is where the super cockpit of the mind comes in. And, but, we need to leave that virtual part and go outside and hug a tree because nothing takes the place of embracing a tree and kissing your wife and holding your child and smelling a rose and touching and those things out there in the world. But what it is, is it enlarges us. It's back to what I said before. It's not either or. What it is is both and. This is now an expansion of our reality out there in the world. So that's where I just say, wow. <laughs> uh, wow, just, just incredible. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing um, how Gen Z engages i don't know how many headsets there are for instance in america but also being able to interact with international students and and learning and and having those worlds and all these experiences um my son just went to and we're wrapping up here but my son just went down the street at a shopping mall and they've got this um thing where he sits in it and it's like it moves with what's happening with the goggles. So he went on a roller coaster ride and I haven't seen it yet, but I, I, I walked by the store and I want to go inside. And uh, I'm thinking like, this is going to be the next deal. Uh, and, 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 and entertainment. What I love about all this, Tom is, is the goodness of it. There's always going to be bad stuff to technology, mm -hmm. but the goodness of it, where I wish before my dad died that I put him in front of a 180 camera, sitting in front of a fireplace, drinking a, dr a glass of wine, and just pretending that he's looking at me when he's looking at the camera. Mm -hmm. So that way I could have almost like a glass of wine with dad every single night mm -hmm. before I, you know, if, if I miss him. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, my, my hero, my, you know, Jesus Christ. It would be cool mm -hmm. to, 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 to record, you know, an actor portraying as Jesus Christ for the spiritual, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gain on that mm -hmm. um, and, and, and time and intimacy and just sitting and watching a fire with Jesus Christ, you know, and him drinking a scotch. Sorry if you don't like my doctrine, but you know, um, <laughs> but you know, that, that is like, it just opens up like this connectivity where me as a speaker, um, you know, being able to do like my own avatar and having our own little boot camp to motivate people to overcome the fear of heights. And, you know, you don't have to burn your feet doing the, the cold walking, but, you know, you go with Nick Vujic <laughs> for a day and a half, right, in the boot camp. And guess where I am? I'm at home. Um, and they're around the world. And it's a, you know, like a, a, a motivational world spiritual world where where you know this is um 
it's really exciting to be able to connect and inspire hope. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets me excited yeah. and, and to understand what, what this all is and, and to really have, um, it's almost like you're meeting somebody um, when, when you're going into a room. Like I can't wait to go into that virtual room of someone who um, was um, human trafficked and they're being interviewed on how their story was and sharing how the nonprofit rescued them and, and, and how you were a part of their freedom. Mm-hmm. Like that stuff is like, whoa, like living, like you said, an expansion of experience. Um, but engagement that we haven't even tapped into mm-hmm. yet. Tom, blows my mind. You're amazing. Um, I've got three questions that I always ask my guests at the very end. But before we get into that, if anybody wants to connect with you or you want them to know something more about something that you're doing, where can they find you? Okay, well, the best thing is to contact me uh, through the Virtual World Society. Uh, that they certainly are welcome to join. We'd like to invite them to join. And uh, the, uh, the uh, URL for the Virtual World Society is www.virtualworldsociety, one word, dot org. Or they can contact me personally at uh, Tom, T-O-M, at virtualworldsociety.org. Love it. Yeah. Uh, I'll be in touch with you because what we want to try to do for our own kids is, is try bring in a whole new uh, elective in schools, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think this is so, so fun. So I'm, I'm excited to reconnect with you and, and see what we could do together to make the world a better place in, in however we can connect with hearts and minds. Tom, what are you most grateful for? Question number one, what are you most thankful for? Well, certainly the top of my list would be um, my heavenly father and my heavenly mother and my savior, Jesus Christ, and my beautiful wife and companion, Linda, my parents and all who've gone before of which I'm a part of. They, you know, I have their DNA. Uh, Those are, uh, and my daughters, my grandchildren, uh, my friends like you. I mean, I'm most grateful for people side, the human side, and for this body to clothe my spirit that gives me a transportation system for my eyes and for my ears, but also to have this opportunity to live in this age. I'm thankful for that, where we have an opportunity to do transformative things, to bring people closer together and realize our divinity, realize that we have that spark of our heavenly parents within us, uh, that we won't, we should want to grow up like them and uh, to be able to go out and create and do these wonderful things and to bring love into the world and to bring hope, as you mentioned before, and, and faith. And all of those things uh, would create in us a sense of peace and joy and uh, to take advantage of the time we have here on the earth encapsulated in this body. I mean, it's sort of like a delivery system for our spirits, right? That actually moves it around. And um, 
So all of those things together, I think, are, are what I'm, I'm most grateful for. Beautiful. Uh, what was the, if you will, a big obstacle that brought a big opportunity in your life? Something that happened in your life that you feel free to share? Some that was difficult, an obstacle, a barrier, but in the end, it turned into a, a big opportunity. <laughs> Well, actually, there are a bunch of those, but, um, uh, you know, it's one of those things where heaven sort of choreographs better than you can. <laughs> but uh, I think probably the one of the, the earliest ones was uh, the fact that uh, I wanted to be an astronaut. I, that was when I was growing up in high school. That was all I could think of. I wanted to be an astronaut. This was when the Mercury astronauts were getting organized. We were going to go into space and things like that. I wanted to be one of those guys. And, uh, and I had planned, the way I was going to plan to do it is to uh, go to the Air Force Academy, uh, become a pilot, uh, uh, a military pilot, and then apply to ast- be a, become a test pilot, and then apply to the astronaut corps and do that whole thing. Because um, I wanted to go to the moon. And so... Uh, when I got ready, I got my conditional appointment to the Air Force Academy, and um, I flunked the eye test. My eyes weren't good enough to go to the Air Force Academy. I was crushed. I didn't have a plan B. And by some miracle, it was a miracle. Uh, I got accepted without even applying, except a week before, the Duke University. And that's when I realized there was another path. I did end up in the Air Force. I did end up in the fighters, but I ended up also helping to develop the technology that was used to train the astronauts and uh, including the Hubble Space Telescope astronauts. Uh, and then my friends uh, that were using my technology at, uh, at, in Houston, Johnson Space Flight Center, invited me down and I went into the shuttle simulator, into the bay, in my spacesuit, and I went to change the, the tray and the electronics in the Hubble Space Telescope to repair it. And I looked up, we were actually flying sort of upside down. I looked up and there was the Earth, and I realized I am an astronaut. <laughs> I'm an astronaut in virtual space that I created. Wow. That never would have happened had I flunked the eye test. Incredible, Tom. Incredible. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. Tom, if there's anyone who needs a little bit of uh, an encouragement, what would you like to tell them? Well, like uh, the spirit keeps telling me over and over again, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, uh, that's the, that's the mantra of the spirits that it's going to be okay. You know, I got all these things, all the balls and how in the world am I going to do all this stuff? And, and I feel inadequate and all this, the spirit says, just calm down. You know, you have this chance, you're on the earth, you have your healthy body, you have a wonderful family, you have, you know, you're able to interact with amazing people. What's the problem, you know, and uh, to get the priorities right. So, uh, it all works out and it's not like, uh, there's any failure. There is no such thing as failure except not trying. I mean, um, if you try and you don't succeed, wow, that's a lesson learned. I mean, that, and, uh, you learn way more from quote 
failures or not succeeding than you do from your successes, I believe. And so that's, that's part of it, I believe, that to, just not to worry. And uh, it'll be okay. And uh, heaven has a way to help us through this. I don't think it makes any sense for heaven to present us problems that we can't solve. What, what would that mean? So there are blessings in disguise. The problems we have are blessings in disguise. They're intended to be our teachers and not our masters. And so the more that we can um, realize that, and when we come across a problem, we say, oh, wow, this is cool. Now I have a chance to learn something. <laughs> then it's all going to work out. Yeah, that's love what it. I would say. Tom, I love you so much. I'm so glad that we met. So glad that we're friends. And thank you so much for sharing uh, today and just op opening up our minds and our hearts to the, the, the incredible expansion of, of what technology enables us to do individually, collectively, as a family as well, uh, as well as making the world a better place. Tom, thank you so much, sir. You're a good man. Nick, I love you too, man, and your, your whole family and the great work that you're doing for all of us. You know, you're blazing the trail. And um, sometime we'll talk more about the challenges you were given. Because just think about it. Would you be able to touch the hearts that you have touched otherwise? 100% no. I don't think so at all. Tom, love you so much. Everyone, thank too. you so much for watching and listening to the Nick Wichich yeah. podcast. And we'll see you next week. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Help us reach as many people as possible by giving us a rating, a review, and subscribing to this podcast. Love you so much. And remember, share this with anyone you know who needs to hear this as well. I'll see you next week.